0: A reading from Numbers 22. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between two vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. When Balak heard what Balaam had Uh, that Balaam had come he went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon at the extremity of the border and Balak said to Balaam did I not send to you to call you why did you not come to me am I not able to honor you Balaam said to Balak behold I have come to you have I now any power of my own to speak anything the word that God put in my mouth that must I speak then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath Hazoth. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep, and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamath Baal, and from there he saw a fraction of the people. Together, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Please remain standing just one more moment as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Give us eyes to see, to understand what your word says, to understand what it means for us. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer, through Jesus Christ, amen. Please be seated. I know this morning you're looking at it and you're like, wow, super long Old Testament passage and the associate pastor's preaching, woo-hoo, banner day, but this is, um, this is actually a fascinating passage and not just fascinating for the 10-year-old boy in my brain that was like, oh, can we read the passage in the King James Version? because if you're familiar with that, um, donkey is not how the word in Hebrew is rendered in the King James. It's another word that is an asset to the language, but is not one that we'll be using or repeating endlessly all the time through the sermon today as tempting as that is for someone like me. You know me, I am just a walking dad joke encyclopedia. And so I'm going to refrain and not be asinine um, and do my best not to mention it. But humor is an an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, we're all thinking it, we're all like, you know, oh, he's gonna say it, he's gonna say it. We're all thinking it because humor is just this infectious thing. And this passage has a lot of humor in it. In fact, this passage, I would say, is satire. And satire is an interesting thing, isn't it? Satire is using humor, irony, exaggeration, ridicule, hyperbole, or as Brian Regan would pronounce it, hyperbole, um, to point out the stupidity, the foolishness, the the just complete inanity of people, their behavior, society, whatever that target is. And satire can be particularly cutting because many times it talks just about the foibles of the human condition, but also how that becomes the foibles of human systems. And so you see a lot of satire that takes aim at polite society or politics or any number of other things. And we're used to satire. Like, how many times in a week do you hear somebody reference a headline from The Onion? You know, it's, it's part of the fabric of our life. And many of us, just for comfort during the pandemic, were binge-watching The Office until Peacock locked it away behind a paywall. No, thank you. And, you know, so we're used to satire being a regular part of our media diet for the most part. Uh, some people are better than me and avoid it because it can tend to skew your own sense of humor to a little more cynical side. So what do we do when we run into a passage in the Scriptures like Numbers 22 that reads like satire? I mean, think about it. There's really important stuff happening, really important stuff in the power and political dynamics of the land into which God's people are being led. And there's a lot going on. There are kings involved, and there are high officials, and there are people, and one person in particular, who is a spiritualist who practices divination, which is also not allowed in God's people, but he practices divination and he wields some sort of spiritual power. So there's a lot at stake. So how do we feel when it comes across as this lighthearted laughter? What do we do when the Bible sounds like satire? Because we want to laugh because the situation is funny. I mean, think about it. The guy was riding his donkey and the donkey was more aware of what was going on than he was. Like, that's... That's really, really humorous, and we want to laugh, but we're not sure if we can or if we should. We, or maybe we don't see the joke because we're so fixated on, well, okay, but how do I defend this passage and its integrity? And yet, if we don't see the joke, maybe we're not seeing what God has put there for us to see. It's also good to keep in mind that there are a lot of different genres of literature in the Scriptures. So when we come to a passage in one of the books of Moses, we see this passage that reads like satire, and we just recognize that God sometimes uses comedy and satire in particular to get our attention so that we collectively, as we follow Him, will remember it together and remember to laugh at the places where He says it's funny. In other words, if you're reading this passage and you're thinking this is sort of like a sitcom, God is running the laugh track. And he's pushing the button so that the laughter explodes and we as the kids watching it and getting our senses of humor formed are like, oh, dad said this is funny. (laughs) Yeah, it is funny. Because it forms us. And it trains us to see things the way God sees them. And in doing that, He crafts us even deeper into his people. He turns us into the kind of people who follow him reflexively, responsively, and faithfully. And this doesn't happen just here. Let's just remember for a moment, the whole book of Esther doesn't mention God directly, but his fingerprints are all over it. And what do God's people do with that book? They read it together. They would read it together on the Feast of Purim, and they would read it together as this communal experience where everyone was to enjoy how wonderful it was that God protects his people from genocide through these hilarious means, through the unlikeliest of stories where one of their own becomes Miss Persia and marries the king. Like, that kind of unlikely stuff doesn't happen. And that the very guy who is looking to kill all of the Jews and to hang Mordecai gets hung on the very gallows he sets up. It's hilarious, but it's dark. Because sometimes the subject matter, like genocide, or like we see in Numbers in chapter 22, we see a dynamic where the people of God are coming into a land where the people who are already there are saying, There's not going to be room enough for both. And they're ready to go to war. They're ready to pull out any stop. They're willing to pull any lever of power or influence they have to get rid of God's people. So there's a lot at stake. But what's interesting is the humor handles the seriousness of that in such a way that we don't lose the lesson But we also don't have to be traumatized as we experience it in story. So I think there's a lot here for us. Just as there was a lot here for the audience that Moses was writing to, preparing them to enter into and take possession of the promises that God had made to them. But it is interesting and it's tricky. And so I'm going to apologize in advance If I handle this in a way that just rubs you wrong, please come talk to me afterward. But humor is an interesting dynamic. Satire is very dicey. There's a well-known saying that a veteran actor was on his deathbed, and when he was asked, in facing his final moments, if facing death was difficult, he said, Dying is easy. Comedy is hard. And so I want to be decently respectful, but also... Help bring out the humor of this so that we together are laughing along with our Father as He invites us into His perspective, as He invites us to see the incident from His point of view. And notice that Israel is not present in this story, but it's definitely in the context because God saw all of this happen and He thinks it's hilarious. So, what does God see? Because we're going to see three things as we go through this passage together. We're going to see what God sees. We're going to see what Balaam doesn't see. And we're going to see what God's people need to see. So first, we see what God sees. What God sees is the powerful who are motivated by their greed. This passage opens up with Balaam and I have to give credit to um, Connie. She actually pronounced it uh, very appropriately according to the Semitic language, um, but I am so stuck in my ways that I'm probably gonna call him Balaam the rest of the sermon, but hopefully you'll understand Balaam and Balaam, same guy. Um, it's just me growing up in Texas and I ain't gonna kick that habit that easy. Um, and now I'm tempted to turn into Hank Hill for the remainder of the sermon. You know? I sell propane and propane accessories. Um, So we see in the opening of this, Balaam saddles his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. And God's anger was kindled because he went. So let me give you some context. There was an exchange here that we didn't have time to read, but I'm going to summarize it right now. Balak went to Balaam, and Balak was the, you know, the, the head honcho of all the Moabites in that area. And Balak comes to Balaam and says, you're a spiritual expert. Please put a curse on Israel because they might take our stuff. He basically says, the land won't sustain a large number of people coming in like that. And we're here first. So we don't want them to take our stuff. Balaam, put a curse on them. Because you do spiritual stuff and it works. So do that for us. So God goes to, so God speaks to Balaam. And God says, don't do it, don't go. And so Balaam goes to Balak's people and says, sorry, can't do it because, you know, God. And Balak sends his people back to Balaam and says, "Um, I don't think you heard me. I can honor you. And when he says honor you, he basically means I can make you an offer you can't refuse because I'm going to give you so much money. And so now, Balaam says, all right, um, I already know what God said, but why don't you representatives from the block, like, stay the night and we'll see what God says by the morning. Get this, he already knows what God has said. Don't do it, don't go. But Balaam goes to God again, and God answers him with what is basically, fine, you're going to do what you're going to do anyway. Go on. But you're not going to speak a curse against my people. And so when you see him starting out on the way, and God is angry with him. You're wondering, okay, is Balaam okay here? Because Balaam is like, you know, he's just like going, and God said, fine, go. Is he a good guy or a bad guy in this story? Is he doing what God wants him to do, or is he doing against what God wants him to do? It's not altogether clear. But what we find When we examine whether Balaam is actually good or bad in this story, we see him actually in the context of what's happening. This is Balaam getting ready to get on his donkey, and he's happy. He's delighted because he's going to go, and he feels like, well, you know, maybe God will change his mind, and I'll be able to curse Israel And then I am going to make so much money. So he's happy to get on his donkey and ride with the representatives from Balak. But God is angry with Balaam because Balaam is heading out with only himself on his mind. He's this spiritualist, this diviner who is supposed to know how all the dynamics work, and yet... He's ignoring the fact that the God who is not going to be betrayed and not going to be denied has told him, Don't do this. But he's going right up to the brink again because he sees that he has a profit to make. He's powerful and he's using his power to get more stuff. He's greedy. And as he's doing this, God is angry with him and God puts all sorts of things in his path. But still, we're we're, we're wondering, is Balaam good here or is he bad? Well, it's pointing out, it's leaning toward he's a bad actor and he's a bad character. We find out later in chapter 31 of Numbers that he actually dies in an armed conflict. And then in Deuteronomy, the very next book in the Bible, in chapter 23, you hear this. As they're setting up the sanctuary and the place where God's people will come and meet with him. There are rules against certain individuals being in the assembly. And all the Moabites get name-checked this way. In verse 3, "...no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came up out of Egypt." And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Baor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. So we see that Balaam is being mentioned as this person who was really only out for his own gain and really only out to curse God's people, to oppose them. And this is consistent through many passages and on into the New Testament. In the New Testament, in 2 Peter, you have this. 2 Peter 2, verse 15. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Peter's telling them an example of those who are false prophets, who are out for their own gain. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice, And restrained the prophet's madness. The prophet's madness. So scripture is helping us understand what scripture means. It's pointing out that the picture of of Balaam here is not of somebody who's this upright prophet of God. He is tapped into spiritual dynamics and spiritual powers. But not in a way that honors God. In a way that is trying to use its power to get more stuff for itself. And Peter's saying, this is not the way you want to be. In fact, Balaam got rebuked by his donkey saying, dude, no. Don't you see how much trouble you're in? Balaam is not a good guy here. He's not. That he's evil, he's perverse. And when you consider that his reputation is built on divination, strictly forbidden for God's people... He's not a saintly person. He's not the person to follow. He's not the hero of the story by any stretch. He represents those who will trade in power and influence, however they may get it. And God puts his angel in the path of Balaam. He puts his angel in Balaam's path to prevent any curse from happening. And also for our sake, to show us that God is not going to let that kind of thing happen to his people. He's not going to let that kind of power brokering damage the promises that he makes and his intentions for us, but it gets better. See, this is what, and he's letting us in on it, But now we need to consider what Balaam is not seeing because the angel of the Lord is put in his path. Remember that when angels show up, it's not, oh, how cute. It's always, don't kill me. People avert their eyes from angels. What do the angels have to say when they're saying, you know we're about to we're we're going to be really soon in the advent season and we're going to hear all those passages again and it's going to be so great. We're going to hear all the passages again of the announcement of Jesus birth coming. And what do the angels say first? They don't start off with merry christmas. They start off with do not be afraid. Because to see an angel manifested in front of you is frightening. This creature that only ever lives in the glorious presence of God has so much leftover glory spilling off of them that it frightens us because we know intrinsically as limited beings that are sinful that if we're unfiltered in the presence of God's glory, we're toast. And we don't have to be trained. We just know. We just respond to that glory showing up. And we're like, ah. And so the angels have to say, do not be afraid. This angel isn't saying, don't be afraid, because Balaam needs to be afraid. But what happens? Nothing. Nothing. Balaam just keeps on trucking. He's riding his donkey, and he keeps going. The angel has manifested. He's shown up, and he's just riding his way. I mean, this is like those videos of people on their phones while they're riding a bike and they run right into a parked car. And you're like, how does that even happen? Well, it happens because you're not paying attention. It's like you're blind to it. And that is exactly what God wants us to see here, is Balaam is blind to an angel manifested in his presence. He's riding his his donkey and he's not looking. And so, this ambitious man, blindly moving into the path of danger, the one thing that can intervene and keep him safe does. And it's his donkey. His donkey moves him off the road. And what does Balaam do? Get back on the road. Now, donkeys are hard to move if they're unmotivated or if they're motivated against what you want. I don't know if you're aware of this. Donkeys have a reputation. In fact, they have such a reputation for being stubborn and not doing what you direct them to do that one name for donkey is sometimes used in common parlance to describe someone who is being stubborn and not doing what they're directed to do. Still didn't say it. But donkeys have that reputation for a reason. And his donkey takes him off the road. And what does Balaam do? He just is so angry. He's trying to to steer him back on the road. And he gets out and he whips him. And so the donkey gets back on the road. But the angel of the Lord is still there. And they're coming up on this vineyard. And there's a wall on either side of the road. The wall is there to keep people from just wandering into the vineyard, and it's to protect the road and have a throughway way through the vineyard, and it's all very good, and the angel of the Lord is standing there right smack in the middle of the road, and the donkey's like, I, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, and so he just goes up to the wall as close to the wall as he can. You know, It's, it's like what we do when we're driving on the, low, on the new low part of 70, and the semi's coming through really fast, and we're like, I'm just going to be in the right lane really fast, and so, it gets over to the right, and it actually is grinding Balaam's foot against the wall. And Balaam just gets angry. And he's like, you dumb donkey! And he's just beating him. And by the way, this isn't, this isn't a good way to treat animals, you know? You should be nice to animals. And this, this is not a picture of someone being nice or even being appropriately corrective. This is somebody losing it on the one creature who's paying attention to what's happening. And so third, what happens? They're in this place where there's no getting around it. The angel of the Lord is right there. And so the donkey just lays down. It's like, I give up. I'm just going to get low and hope nothing happens. So Balaam gets out, and he's beating him again. And the Lord has mercy on the donkey and gives the donkey speech. Is this the usual kind of thing? Like, donkeys don't talk. Our animals don't talk. They do communicate to us in different ways, but I don't think that this is a mournful uh, set of donkey eyes looking up at Balaam like, hey, you want to check that out, maybe? You know, like my dog will communicate to me that she wants to be petted by slowly scratching the skin off my forearm. But Balaam donkey is talking with the speech of people and is saying, dude, come on, is 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 this how you treat me? Is this how we are? Haven't I ever taken you everywhere you've needed to go your whole life? Would you pay attention? Pay attention. So the donkey speaks. The donkey speaks, and what are we supposed to get from this? What we're supposed to get is it is so hilarious that Balaam is so blind to what God is doing right in front of him. It's not just that he can't see, it's that he's refusing to see. He's unable to register what God is doing right in front of him. And when we see the donkey speaking to him, what should be happening in us is this is so ridiculous. I don't even know how to register it. This is Michael Scott following the instructions of the GPS into a lake. This is so ridiculous. This is so impossibly wrongheaded. And we're supposed to be in on the joke with God because God is pointing out how hilarious it is to him when anyone tries to invoke power over his power. It's not the fake laughter of somebody who's trying not to be intimidated. It's God actually being very, very kind and condescending and saying, "Oh, that's that's hilarious, isn't it? How dare someone try and subvert my blessing on my people? I'm not having it." And look at how ridiculous it is when somebody tries. It's ridiculous. But Balaam can't look up because he has to have his eyes opened. I mean, do you see in the passage (laughs) where that takes place? It's just so beautiful. Verse 31, then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. See how the tables turn? Balaam is so angry at his donkey that he's ready, he, like he's, he's beating her with his whip, and he says, I wish I had a sword, I would kill you. And now the tables turned, and the angel of the Lord says, she did right. I should have killed you. And he's t- completely humbled completely humbled and made to see what he refused to see earlier. And sometimes the lesson we need to take from that is to realize that only the Lord can open our eyes at times to what he's doing in our lives, to how he's working in us, to what kind of danger awaits us. And also, he's the only one who can open others' eyes You may feel like I just need to reason people into following Jesus' ways. I just need to, I I, I just need to like keep inviting them until they're sick of it and just come out of guilt. But the reality is sometimes God alone is able to open their eyes to what He's doing in their lives. And as we conclude this this passage as we continue to look at this passage, what we're going to see is what God's people need to see. That God's blessings are on his people, and there's no no situation that can change that. No plot of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. That, That theme in that hymn is what this passage is concluding with. Because the rest of the story shows us the picture of how things really are. Balaam continues on and meets Balak. And what does Balak do? Balak hounds him for being late. Think about it. Balaam just got schooled seriously by the Lord for hounding his donkey, who ultimately was right. And then you have Balak saying, where have you been? But Balaam shows up, and Balaam ends up speaking blessings over Israel, not curses, declaring that they are blessed by Yahweh and no curse will be effective on them. In chapter 23, just a couple of, just a couple of quick examples. In chapter twenty-three, verse eight, you hear, "But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam." Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loved you. Wow! And you see this, this, these passages. <laughs> Sorry, I just wrote out it read out of Deuteronomy. That was my bad. Um, my little flipping, but we'll get to that in just a moment because it is important. But in chapter 23 of Numbers, you have verse 8. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Later on, in verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot revoke it. Chapter 24, verse 9, just the second part. Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. And later on, he kind of tells his own story in the final oracle that he speaks. He says, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. He's kind of telling his own story. I get it now. And here's the story. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. The story changes for Balaam. Balaam. He is so compelled by the might of God and the power of God that he's speaking the truth of God. Does that make him a good guy at the end of the story? No. And before we get too far with, you know, you know a stop clock is right twice a day, it's more than that. It's actually a powerful demonstration of what God is able to do. Balaam's not a better person at the end of the story. He's just rightfully submitted Under the power of God. Because God is the one who is ultimately sovereign. God can and will use anything to accomplish his will. Even a greedy spiritualist trying to make a killing by cursing a people. He will use even you and I with our mixed motives and our half-hearted devotion. God will use this and so much more. He will even use a mute beast like a donkey to say true things to confront us and get us looking at what we need to look at. God will use whatever and whomever to do his holy will. God will use whatever and whomever to do his holy will. So what we see here is this is a story that uses comedy to indelibly shape the way we see the world. It's a picture that etches into our mind as we hear it. It sticks with us like, how can this be? But this picture it's really etching into us is our God is sovereign. He's in control. There's no power that can be leveraged over him because he is the ultimate omnipotent one. And this is what God's people need to hear. This is what I need to hear. This is what we right here today need to hear. And he loves us. And he loves us. Nothing stands in the way of God's blessing on his people. And this is where I should appropriately read Deuteronomy 23.5. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. Because the Lord your God loved you. That is the refrain that should etch into our minds when we hear this story, when its humor softens the trauma of, yeah, there's a lot of opposing powers and forces against us that could leave us scattered and paranoid and frightened. But instead, because of the humor that God invites us in as he looks at it, we say, oh, but my father loves me and he's in control of all of this. He's not ruled, he rules. He isn't owned, he owns. He isn't bossed around, he directs how things happen. That refrain, because the Lord your God loved you, I almost feel like that needs to be something we recite together. Because the Lord our God loves us. Would you say that with me? Because the Lord our God loves us. Let's say it again. Because the Lord our God loves us. You know, the Lord our God can make a way through the waters to safety. Because the Lord our God loves us. Say it with me. Because the Lord our God loves us. The Lord can give us bread in the wilderness because the Lord our God loves us. The Lord our God makes the rich to come into the kingdom the way a camel can somehow go through the eye of a needle because the Lord our God loves us. The Lord our God makes the dead to rise because the Lord our God loves us. He makes justice roll down. Because the Lord, our God, loves us. He makes the barren fruitful because the Lord, our God, loves us. He makes the sinner into a saint because the Lord, our God, loves us. He makes a curse into a blessing because the Lord, our God, loves us. And the Lord, our God, says that nothing can separate us from his love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. None of that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.